It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something with your own head. Beat it up and I've got no people. And a fucking platter with a fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, but it's just a gang from the government for hiring the combat site. Like it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. Who is this Dr. Bones guy anyhow? Sounds like a nut to me. Nah, he's a nice guy. He's my husband. He is? Well, yeah. he... I, I'll tell you one thing about this guy. Uh-huh. I don't trust him. <laughs> I do. He's a doctor. He's got a sort of sneaky look about him. Nope. Shifty eyes and... <laughs> Beady, beady little eyes. You must be thinking of someone else. I don't know. I think I think it must be. It must uh-uh. be. Him. Nope, you're wrong. Well, well, we know who you are. Although, say your real name. My name is Joe Alton, MD. I don't know this Doctor Bones guy. I know, but I am sometimes called Doctor Bones of DoomandBloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, podcasts, videos, all sorts of stuff on medical preparedness for any disaster. And this is a survival medicine hour, by the way. Oh, is it? <laughs> the doom and bloom survival medicine hour. That's true. I am Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner. And I am also known as Nurse Amy. That's right. And together we are the dynamic duo, the courageous couple, the masters of disaster. And we're here to help the faithful few keep it together, even in times of trouble. And we're shortening our beginning. That's right. <laughs> but I'm still going to As advertise. I'm going to advertise about being injured in an accident. Have you been injured in an accident with a laconic lizard? If you know what laconic means, you might not say it, since folks that are laconic don't talk a lot. That's what it means. Indeed. So and, people and you know who what? are laconic don't talk a lot. That's right. And that's fine well, with that's me. not a good trait to have if you're going to do a podcast, though. That's true. Although you can. You want to be anti-laconic. Anti-laconic and maybe play the... So or, you said or anti the, and yes. I said anti. Or, right. I said... Which one did I say? Anti? No. Anti-laconic. You said anti. Anti-laconic. And I said anti. Yeah. Well, Isn't I had funny? Well, because I had an anti-laconia once, <laughs> you know, back in the old days. All right. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. 
Yeah, I don't think course. we can get rid of that, though. Of course you can. I think we're going to have to say that every we time. We will have to say a disclaimer because we are medical professionals. Maybe we can shorten it up just a little bit more. All right. Well, we just made it longer by wondering about it online. That's here. true. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know what? I'm pontificating. Bad, in bad times, you got to do some good. You got to show the world you got more sense than a box of frogs and get the training and education you need. You can get some of it here. And while you're at it, how about a quality medical kit? You can get that too. You need that, don't you? And there's no better place to get that quality medical kit than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Compare our kits for content, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. You'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. If you need more proof, check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say about our kits and service. By the way, on top of that, our kits are indeed approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA, FSA section in the store. Well, we talked about wound closure a bit last week, especially the less invasive methods like strips and butterfly closures and medical or industrial glues. And they're great for minor injuries, not solid enough to keep some wounds, say, over a joint closed. These injuries are under stress from movement all the time, and they constantly test the integrity of your closure. Now, wounds like that need more durable closures, things like sutures and staples. We talked a little bit about them last week. We'll talk a little bit more now. Uh, These are closure methods that will give strong support to a healing wound, and each one of these methods has its advantages and its disadvantages. They should only be used when lesser methods don't work, uh, like on joints or any wound that, that, when closed, is going to be under a lot of tension. That's right. And why is that? Well... Because you're putting holes in the skin every time that you put in a stitch or put in a staple. That's right. Additional areas that can get infected. You're absolutely right. Your skin's your armor, and that's what prevents you against infection. So the more holes you put in your skin, the more uh, defects that are in your armor, and that More healing has to occur. That's right. That's why we call them invasive methods of wound closure. Uh, We're asked to teach these methods probably more than any other first aid procedure, even though really it's not first aid at all. You don't get any training in this kind of thing in your first responder classes. It's not a first responder skill, period. No. And what's what's your goal? What's your goal as a first responder? To evaluate and stabilize a victim and then get that person to the next highest medical resource. Hopefully a hospital pronto or preferably you can wait until the next highest resource like EMS comes to you. Now, if you move injured patients, that's a risky proposition for you to do yourself in normal times, at least, because there are spinal issues, because a bleeding wound you might have stopped may re-bleed with all the jostling that goes along with transporting somebody, especially somebody that weighs a lot. It's just best to let the pros handle it in normal times. Right. I agree completely. Now, wound closure, however... It is a handy skill to have if you're going to be the highest medical asset left and you're concerned about the uncertain future. If you're going to be the end of the line when it comes to your people's well-being, medical well-being at least, you're going to have to obtain the knowledge to be able to function effectively, and that means learning how to close wounds. It's not just learning the mechanics, you know, how to throw a stitch. I could probably teach an armadillo to do that or to place a staple. I don't know if he can hold the needle holder, though. Well, we can make special <laughs> needle holders, armadillo-type needle holders. Okay. I would like to, I'd rather make one for a raccoon because they have really nimble they do. hands, They're, don't they? They have 
great dexterity. And I've seen them even wash their hands in the creek. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and well, anyhow, it's not just about the mechanics of it; it's about the judgment That's of right. it. That's right. You know, when should a wound be closed? When should a wound stay open? And you need the skill to know which of these closure methods to use. Most wounds in survival settings are going to be dirty. They're going to be contaminated. So closing a wound that's left open, that should be left open, that's going to cause a lot more trouble than just doing regular open wound care, some that we're not going to talk about today, but we will be talking about in the future. Now, staples, we mentioned last week a little bit about the history of staples. They were start uh, invented in 1908 mm -hmm. they were meant to close intestines or you know torn intestines Inside, intestines that right. were not in connected internal, right that's right and they're still used for that purpose actually in modern operating rooms but from a practical standpoint you're going to be using them only to close skin and that's because the special materials to connect torn intestines cost gosh each one of those Types of staplers cost hundreds of dollars hundreds. each. Actually, it, hundreds I, of I'm, dollars. I'm assuming they've gone down in price because they did cost fifteen hundred back when I was practicing back in the old Stone Ages. And <laughs> <laughs> if you have your, you know, hard reality, if you got somebody with their guts that are not together in an off-grid scenario, you don't have a lot of hope for survival. Honestly, you're going to have probably. A lot more damage trying to open that person up, find the torn parts of the intestine. Wait, can we just back up? Together. There's no way you could do that. The person's not under anesthesia. That's right. They're, I mean, yes, there's right. pressure that occurs inside if someone's not out of it. It's a mess. Yeah. It's a mess. But what can you do? Uh, you gotta make sure that you deal with things as. In, in such a way that you do as little harm as possible. That's right. Let me do put no it that harm. Way. Do no harm. That's the or do basic... as little harm as possible, there like you, you go. said. So anyhow, I think that sutures are the most versatile closure method, uh, but staples are the easier method to deal with in terms of putting them in. Uh, today, sutures are comprised of a string attached to the end of a needle. In the old days, you used to, you have, to, used to have to thread the needle oh, with yeah. the string and... and that was the old days, about 100 years ago, they invented a process called swaging. We talked about it a little bit last time, in which they made a hole in the blunt end of the needle, put the string in it, and then crimped it. And so now, finally, for the first time, you had a string and a needle as one unit. Right. So when I ask for a suture in the operating room, I don't expect to be... Right. I don't expect to be handed a needle and then a thread that I have to put through the eye of the needle. That is something that is back from the old days. <laughs> <laughs> now, so I do want to talk about various different types of suture material, though. So, and that's something we didn't talk about last week. How do you decide when to use sutures or staples? We talked about that a little bit. Remember, sutures can be used on skin or deep layers, staples only for skin. Uh, sutures are really good for jagged lacerations, but staples are easier to put in uh, if the laceration is just straight. A straight line and you have a person with you that's right because it's best performed with an assistant because less skill is required to actually put a staple in than to put sutures in sutures you could actually do yourself but if you're the person holding the stapler in a staple procedure you're the unskilled labor that's true that's right your assistant is the person that's going to determine whether the skin is put together the way it sort of originally was now if you know what you're doing you can actually if it's a, a leg you could have the patient 
Can you imagine the pain of holding the skin together, waiting for a staple to come down? Oh, boy. But there's some brave people out there, and yes. I bet that has been done. Yes, and you will never have to prove your bravery in any other way. No, if you exactly. Do. So those are some of the things that you need to know. Of course, the thing with staples is that they're really just a couple of choices, a medium or, or, or normal or large size. Right. But... From wide. a suture they call it standpoint, a wide. wide. That's right. what they're. That's right. Determining now. Yes, yes, exactly. But with sutures, there's a lot of different materials that you can use based on what your needs are. So let's talk a little bit about those today. The first suture materials were either cat gut, actually not made from cats' guts, but from the intestinal lining of sheep and you know, cows. You know, that's very confusing. Yes. Why would they have done that? They should have just called it cow gut. There's some there's some or history, and I know I've read it once about why they called it cat gut, but I don't remember. That is a good question. I don't remember the story. There was there a story as to why it's called that. Maybe, but it's not from cats. Maybe it was a great way to sort of decrease the cat no, population cat, in the neighborhood. The, the word cat was some other source, uh, not from cats. I mean, that word was... It meant something else. I have to look it up again. It was a very interesting story. The other early suture material was silk, and both of these materials are actually still available today in one form <clears throat> or another. Now, suture string is either absorbable or non-absorbable. Catgut, for example, is going to dissolve in the body over the course of several weeks. There are two types of catgut, plain, which dissolves in just a couple of weeks, and chromic, which is sort of dipped in a chromium solution, that dissolves in about three to four weeks. Absorbable sutures like this are used for deep layers, or let's say they could be used in the oral cavity if you're doing dental work or if there's a, a tear in the inside of the cheek. And of course, they're used to close lacerations that are incurred, let's say, in the vagina as a result of childbirth. So that's another reason that you would use it for. Uh, more recently, they've been synthetic absorbables like Vicryl or otherwise known as polyglycolic acid, and that's another way that you can use an absorbable suture and it lasts longer than catgut. It's taking right. probably a couple of months maybe to absorb. Here's the story. Do you want to read that? Yes, okay. Well, let's see what we got here. Catgut. Why did they call it catgut? It was material made of animal intestine. It was used to make the ancient cat nine tails Wow. Which was, of course, we all know that that was a whip that had nine strands. They used, used it to flog people with Back in the old days. Wow. So how about that? So that's why they got call it catgut, because of the cat of nine tails. Okay. Wow. Now we know. How about that? Well, listen to this podcast, and you will learn <laughs> something. That's for sure. And it said sheep intestine happens to be generally the substance of More choice. commonly used than cow yes. intestine. Okay, interesting. <laughs> Good to know. So anyhow, more recently, you get all these synthetic absorbables, so you don't have to actually take intestines from any animal and right. they're very very <laughs> useful but there are more commonly you're going to probably have in your kit non-absorbable sutures these are preferably used on the skin most of the things that you're going to be doing are going to be dealing with lacerations in the skin and these are things that can be removed when the wound is healed they don't absorb on their own they stay there forever otherwise uh, and they're something that for that reason, you might want to have them just for use on skin lacerations, which is probably what you'll be seeing for the most part anyhow. Uh, examples of non-absorbable sutures include silk and cotton. 
thread would be uh, typical non-absorbable synthetics that were developed more recently include monofilament line, things that you see in fishing line except much thinner, uh, things like proline, nylon, and all of these are meant for the skin. But these sutures can be used anywhere that you can accept their permanent presence in the body. If you can deal with that, then you can do it. What happens if you place permanent suture in deeper layers? Well, the body recognizes silk, for example, uh, as a foreign object. And what it does is your immune system will wall it off as it would any invader. And this forms a small nodule that we call a granuloma. You might feel that under the skin if you have a deep suture that was placed with a non-absorbable type of suture, uh, string, well, indeed, you'll feel it under the skin. You may feel it under the skin for years. Sometimes it works its way up actually out of the skin, as a matter of fact, in some circumstances. But, I, I just want to interrupt you for yeah. one second. I actually found the story of cat gut, and it was written, look at that, 1949. September 1st, 1949. It's a whole article, and it's really interesting. And look at there's pictures. Old pictures look, from the factory. Oh, this is the them splitting factory. the sheep intestine into, into ribbons. ribbons. Look at there's the people machine well, cleaning it. Well, you know you that have I have to am do just, an article on this. You know, I'm just a nut for history. It's, but so. look at how long this is. Isn't that awesome? Well, you have to do I don't a, know how awesome it is that it's long, but no, I, but it will be interesting because you know I love reading about that stuff. Oh, and you know who was involved in this? Who? Look at this name. Lister, yes. Well, Lister is a guy who makes made the bandage scissors yes, that and a we use in our kits. Things. How about that? Yes, and a lot of other instruments as well. He was Joseph one of the, Lister, yeah, one of the fathers ex- of surgery. 1868, the year before he went to Edinburgh University as a professor of clinical surgery, he experimentally tied cat gut round the right carotid artery of a calf. Oh, that's thirty not... days later, the uh-huh. animal was killed, and Lister examined the ligature. At first, he thought it was unchanged, but under closer investigation, revealed, in fact, that the cat gut, cat gut was no longer present, but had been replaced by a ring of living tissue. How about 1868. No, you definitely have to write an article on this. This is super Well, cool one thing I know about know. Professor Lister is he liked veal. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, he didn't like mutton so much. Okay. Otherwise, he would have used, uh, well, yeah. All right. Okay, so where Very was I? So I'm, stuff. So we're talking about, so so I think we were talking about what happens if you place permanent sutures in deeper layers. Well, the body walls it off. It's got an immune system. It walls off like it would any invader, and it forms a nodule. The nodule is called a granuloma. And we just talked about what happens yes. with absorbable. Yes, absorbable doesn't an, do that. That's right. Right. They found living tissue. There you go. And so it's very useful to have absorbable suture, especially for deep layers, and it's very important to have non-absorbable suture, especially for skin, because it's much more solid. Now, there's really, if you use it, though, under the skin, non-absorbable, there's really very little ill effect other than forming these granulomas. If you really needed to stitch a deep layer, all you had was a non-absorbable suture, well, well, Teddy Roosevelt said, do what you can with what you have, where you are and so that's my advice to you as well now besides different materials sutures come in various thicknesses these thicknesses have names like o two o three o four o five o things like that these are gauges i guess used on humans commonly they use thicker 
su uh, thicker suture on large animals. So you might start going into positive numbers instead of zero. You have one, two, three, things like that. And the higher the number uh, of zeros in it, if you're going zero, two, zero, or zero, two, oh, three, oh, four, oh, the thinner the thread will be. So the terminology is different, but it's similar to buckshot. If you got a shotgun out there, you know that double-lot shotgun, double-lot double shot, is thicker than triple-lot shot, just as 2-0 is thicker than 3-0 suture. So if you extrapolate that to suture material, O is thicker engaged than 2-0. 2-0 uh, is thicker engaged than, let's say, 6-0. 6-0 is used for, for delicate work on humans, uh, for example, on the face, things like that. The heavier suture has more strength. Finer suture leaves less of a scar. For example, consider using 2 or 3-0 on many of the types of uh, work that you are going to be doing in survival. So that will be my suggestion, 2-0, 3-0, 4-0 -oh, maybe. That would be just about it. Uh, o is not the absolute largest suture. As I mentioned, it goes into positive numbers like 1 or 2. And the higher the number, the thicker the suture. And you get smaller as you add zeros. So it's a 6-0, 7-0, 8-0 and it can go all the way at least to 12. I mean, if you had a 30-0 or 30-O suture, you could probably tie two bacteria together. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if you, well. yeah, that's right, if you if you had high that's, positive number sutures, uh -huh. like a six, you could probably can tie your canoe to the dock. That's true. <laughs> with that stuff. Now we're talking about real cordage <laughs> instead of suture. Exactly. Needles, too, they have progressed over time. They can be straight, they can be curved, multiple other shapes. And originally, these things were eyed and separate from the string. Uh, then when swaging occurred, they became one unit. And some swage needles are meant to pop off after a quick tug after placing each stitch. We use that a lot yes. in surgery in, in when I practice. But I think it's very wasteful, not something you would want to have in a survival setting because you need to conserve as much material as possible. That's what our classes are mostly about, is conserving material as well as actually doing the procedure itself. Now, so it's ha it was handy to pop these things off and just go on, but boy, so incredibly wasteful mm -hmm. suture material. So don't use it unless you know you're going to have an unlimited supply, That and who's going to have that, really. Uh, needles, they're also categorized based on the point and what the shape of the point are. So the two most common needle points are called tapered and cutting, although there are various other types. One is round and tapers, it's a tapered needle, smoothly to a point uh, like a javelin, mm -hmm. let's say, like a, or like a sharpened pencil. Right. That's what that looks like. And then you have the cutting needles. Cutting needles are triangular in shape. They have a sharp cutting edge, at least on one side, on the curve of the needle. And cutting, ed cutting needles are best used in dense tissue such as skin because they'll go through tough tissue easy, but much more easily than tapered needles. But tapered needles cause less damage to tissue, and so they'd be useful if you had to actually fix a hole in, in an intestine or some other very delicate tissue. What about the tissue next to my fingernail that I sliced yesterday? Yes. Well, yours is actually not too so bad. You're I know. You're just fine, you poor thing. Ugh. You are... Sometimes prone to You know, it was a brand-new Cutco knife. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Those things are, are... Well, of course, I only buy the sharpest knives in the world. Right. So, you, 
So you got a cut. But from I knew a cut I had to knife. cut a lot yesterday because we did those bananas. Right, right. We you cut should... up our fresh bananas and made the dehydrated bananas, and then I was also making a pasta salad, and then I made guacamole. <laughs> so I needed wow. my knife a lot you yesterday. You're just amazing. I made those all yesterday. Well, I'm, I'm not going to cook for the next month. Well, so. tell me about your. <laughs> yeah. Well, I. I, I was no, very impressed by your, your dehydrate. I did. Uh, oh, you're done. I, I did. Okay. That's what I want to talk about okay. with regards to uh, the various kinds of suture material. Well, the, the cut on my finger leads to why I cut my finger, which was the fact that I was cutting all those things yesterday. I actually did it um, cutting one of the last bananas. Well, I think I that's got distracted because your son came over. <laughs> I so, looked up for a second. Don't cut anything while you're not looking at your fingers. It was a right. mistake. I looked up for one second and went, eek. Look ah. at what you're doing. So <laughs> the important thing is, you, what did you do? You washed it yes, we thoroughly. Did. Yes, we did. And we took a look at it. It looked like it was He took me to the bathroom holding knife. my hand like I was a little girl. Aww. Come to the bathroom. We're going to clean it. <laughs> All right. So you have to clean you're it. You're so sweet. And then we put a... Soap and water. Soap washed, and water. Washed a lot. I decided that uh, you didn't need a stereo strip on it. No. And so we just put a. I mean, a it's kind on of it. flapped up right now because it's starting the granulation tissue. Yes. Underneath is pushing the, the dead, flap. Up I, a little I cut bit. sliced underneath the skin. Right. So it's sort of got a flap that's going to eventually just cr- now, get crusty and peel off. Now, if that flap had been torn off, with the actual cut, then we call that an avulsion. Yes, because the skin was completely moved. But it was attached on one side, and it's just a flap. Mm-hmm. But you see how it's lifting up now? Yeah, I see it. There's but healing I, underneath but it's, it. But it also has no it's no different in color than nope. the rest of the tissue. So Not it's yet. got circulation. So I believe that it's going to heal. And oh, that, you think that skin will reattach? Yeah, I don't think you're going to lose so that skin. So after Maybe we washed it, just a little lesson, after we washed it with soap and water, uh, we I took raw unprocessed honey and I put a dab of that on the band-aid mm-hmm. and then we wrapped it of course we had to change the band-aid like four times because I'm still doing things in the kitchen and then I have to wash my hands and then the band-aid gets wet you know that's really annoying when you have a cut on your finger and you have to constantly wash your hands you have to change that band-aid every single time that is a pain so recommendation for your medical storage or even at your house have tons of bandage bandages Band-Aids. <laughs> Tons yes. of them. Because every time it gets wet, you got to change it. All right. So you do need you do need Band-Aids. You, maybe so you don't need many. 200 Band-Aids, but you know what? I think you need 200 you Band-Aids. Need, you probably need some. <laughs> you need some Band-Aids. That's for, for sure. For your house, at That's least. Right. Oh, my goodness gracious. They say, you know, some of these Walmart medical kits are just all Band-Aids. Well, I guess if that's all you, you're going to have a problem with, tiny little cuts, Band-Aids are fine. But usually we have other things that happen too. Yes, you're right. And we have so to you got to have other that. things, right? Not just a kit of band aids. That's right. I want to mention a little bit uh, about our sponsor. Our sponsor is Gold Wealth Management. You know that when it comes to survival and being prepared, we know the must-have items that immediately come to mind are a complete medical kit and a bug out bag. And our friends at Gold Wealth Management remind us to have our bug out bank in place as well. Your bug out bank should contain physical gold and silver along with three months of living expenses in cash. Call Gold Wealth Management to get a free education about investing in gold and silver. At current prices, the gold and silver market 
is on sale. Call 866-GLD-SLVR. That's 866-GLD-SLVR. Or 866-453-7587. And thanks to Gold Wealth Management for sponsoring our show. Hey, you know that we need water to live. We yes. need bourbon, of course, to live also. You don't drink. <laughs> I don't know why you even mentioned that. What do you mean? Yes, I need water. And, that, I need a little water in my bourbon. Isn't that called a teetotaler when you don't drink? Yeah. You're a teetotaler. No, I deny it. You are, but that's okay. Your liver is very, very happy. Yes, a healthy <laughs> liver is a healthy, I don't know, whatever. That's right. You're going to live to be 100 years old, babe, or oh, at least boy. your liver will. God forbid. All right, so... <laughs> So how long do you have to boil water yes. for it to be safely drinkable? And I'll bet out there you guys know the answer, but it's interesting. You might just be wrong. You ask 10 survivalists, you get 10 answers. The important thing, then, is in a survival setting where water and fuel might both be limited, how much boiling is required and what are the good things and the bad things associated with it? There are all sorts of disease hey, causes. Hey, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, Dr. Bowen. Oops, what was that? Oh, actually, you know what that is? That was the very beginning of an interview we had with Joe Ordia just last week. I know, that's so oh, funny. My gosh, it was still on the recorder. Built to Survive, yeah, and <laughs> it was still on the recorder, and, it's, and his name is Joe, and so it sounded like somebody was... <laughs> so anyway, hey, Joe, you there? And I say, yeah. <laughs> well, but if you do want to listen to that interview, it's in last week's show. In last week's podcast. show. And, it's, and you can find it at Blog Talk Radio. Speaking of which, I also want to mention that if people do listen through iTunes, I now have a sidebar. If you look at any of the articles on Doom and Bloom, you go to the article pages for specific articles. Look on the right side. That bar, the sidebar, now has a banner that will take you to the Apple podcast preview page, hmm. which has a nice little area for show descriptions. So if you listen on Apple and you use iTunes, there's now a link. Again, you got to push on one of the articles to get to the second page, and then it's in that, that sidebar. And it'll give you a description for the show so you know what you're about to listen to. Sometimes when you're on iTunes... It'll show you like three words for a description, no. and a lot of times you say Joe Alden and, and or Amy it. Alton. So all I'm seeing oh is gosh. like the past few shows you've been doing that. Oh, Somehow right. it's pulling those out, so it's really hard to tell what you're listening to. So that Apple Preview podcast podcast page pulls more of the blog talk description. So you can actually see if it's something you might have listened to before. So it's a new page that they've come up with for survival medicine. But I found it. It was not easy. Boy, I had to search. But I made a little banner, and I've got the link to it, so you just have to push on it, and you'll get to it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And it says Apple Podcast Page on the banner. Good to know. can't miss it. So, you know, if people like to listen on iTunes. But we do have the Blog Talk uh, banner also. Just above that is the Blog right. Talk banner. Yeah, blogtalkradio.com. So, anyhow, there are all sorts of disease-causing microbes, also called pathogens, yes. and that are harmful to humans and that can be found in water. Things like protozoa, things like bacteria, things like viruses. The protozoa that you have to look out for include things like giardia, ame- amoeba, and cryptosporidium. That is a problem. 
Uh, harmful bacteria include Salmonella, Shigella, causes dysentery, E. coli. Uh, viruses are there as well. They're water contaminants, and they include mm-hmm. things like enterovirus, hepatitis, norovirus. Didn't you have norovirus when we went to New York that one time? Oh, yes. You did, and you were miserable. And I almost got it the last time. Oh, Do you boy. remember? I, yeah, you weren't feeling too well. But that was much shorter and... I always bring my tummy medicine from now on. Yes. Very wise. <laughs> Just in case. You're a wise woman. My stomach Adiel. starts cramping when I take those medicines the Russian doctor gave me. Yes. Remember when we saw the Russian right, doctor? We had to see some Russian doctor. That was yeah. interesting. It's just so funny how everybody is in their own little cubicle, and you go, to, you have to go into an elevator of this building. Oh, which I hate elevators. You go to the forty seventh floor. It's probably like a hundred year old floor. elevator. Just incredible, the, what goes on in New York City there. Well, in any case, there are a lot of different ways to disinfect water. We talked about bleach in the past that yes. is popular. Iodine also will work to disinfect water. Ultraviolet light. Uh, just the light of the direct sunlight on clear bottles of water. That's another way. But, but several the, hours, not yes. not a couple of minutes. Right, exactly. But of all the ways that you can disinfect water, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, recommends boiling, boiling as the best method. They have an excellent PDF, by the way, you can download. It's called Drinking Water Treatment Methods for Backcountry and Travel Use. And it certainly is useful for survival as well. You should put that in the description and blog talk. Yes, I will. Okay. Oh, the CDC believes that none of the methods other than boiling are 100% effective in killing all disease-causing bugs. Even bleach takes several days to kill some organisms like cryptosporidium. That's a real big problem. And that's something we talked about a few months ago on this podcast. Of course, the CDC and I suggest that cloudy water should always be filtered in some way or at least left to settle before pouring out the clear water on top for boiling. Now, here's a fun fact. How much wood does it take to boil one liter of water? When you said that, all I thought was, how much wood does a woodchuck chuck? Well, that's interesting. <laughs> that's the only thing I that's thought so, your Because I know that answer, too. <laughs> it takes one kilogram of wood, of wood fuel, to boil one liter of water. So a kilogram, you need 2.2 wow. pounds of lot. wood to boil a, a liter of water. Now, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? 19 ounces. That's right. And Are you yep, seriously? Yep, we know tested that? it. We tested it with a number of woodchucks in a double blind study at Johns Hopkins University, and they could chuck an average of 19 ounces of wood before they got tired. Now, these were, of course, just the woodchucks that could chuck wood. Because and not that the apparent- ones that were too lazy to right. chuck wood. Well, no, apparently it takes some training to be able to do that if you're a woodchuck. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so. they went to woodchuck school. Right. Woodchucking school. That's right. Next week, by the way, we're going to bring in our good friend Peter Piper. He's going to tell us how many pickled peppers he could pick. And I'm guessing it's going to be about a peck. So you seem really prepared for the off comment that I just made. I know. I had you, no idea. It's so funny that you actually <laughs> thought of that. No idea that you actually had a prepared answer. You had researched this thoroughly. I No idea. I have a prepared but totally made up answer. <laughs> yeah, you mean it wasn't thoroughly researched? Are you sure? Honey, you always thoroughly research things. Right, but you do admit when you don't. That's right. So that's, the, I like when you're you're always an honest, honest person. That's right. 
All right. So anyhow, so disinfection <laughs> means the removal okay. or destruction of harmful disease causing bugs, things that we call pathogens. Uh -huh. Now, if you're alone in the woods with nothing but a fire starter, well, this is going to be best accomplished by boiling, right? Now, freezing. Does freezing work? Freezing, on the other hand, doesn't kill bacteria. What it does is it prevents them from multiplying. And as soon as the water warms up, the bacteria begin multiplying again. Now, having said that, if you get two pots of water and you freeze one, mm -hmm. stopping reproduction, and you leave the other one at room temperature, well, the frozen water is certainly going to have less bacteria in it but not, than the room temperature water. But not water. completely pure. Right. There not, are things that survive freezing. Absolutely. They, they find things when they go up to the Arctic. Yes. And or not, the Antarctic, right. and they drill in these pipes and they take out... Thousands and thousands of years of layers of history right, core, yeah. of things. Yeah, they core take samples. out cores of these giant round icicles or ice cubes, and they find living things. Yes, you're right. Or things that become living again. Right. Freezing is not the same as killing bacteria. No. You're not killing bacteria by freezing. You need to boil it, not freeze it. The goal of disinfection is what? To make water drinkable. Now, I should say that disinfection is different than sterilization. You sterilize water, you've removed all microbial life forms in it. But that doesn't Which mean Which is difficult. Right. And that doesn't mean there couldn't be lead in it or some other toxin. That's true. And so what you need is a filter that can get rid of more than just the bacteria and uh, the parasites and right. stuff like that. Of most most things that are harmful. That's right. You're cutting down on what what you have to be worried about. And there's also the point of your stomach having acid and you being, you know, kind of protecting yourself. That's what humans do. They we protect ourselves. We have immunity from a lot of things and you get exposed to things all day long. That's right. That don't make us sick. Yes, it's but amazing. But we're what we still can being exposed, right? From. So these filters are not perfect, but they're certainly better than nothing, right? That's absolutely right. Why don't you tell you have laying around your mystical warehouse of mystery? <laughs> I know you have some uh, filters laying around. What are the filters that I you do. have that our readers can get? Well, or our have, listeners can get. I have two. I have one that is a sort of a charitable organization. I would call them. And that's the Life Straw. And their deal is it is $20 a Life Straw, which is kind of expensive for a Life Straw for a filter that only filters 264 gallons. It probably does more, but that's what they say. Right. That's... that's 1,000 liters. That's technically what they're, they're saying. But... And it's lightweight. It's portable. There aren't any pieces you have to connect to it. And to clean it out, you just back flush it, which means you're just... Pushing Blow out. water out, right? So pretty simple, pretty it's lightweight. Like a yeah, not not too big or bulky. Very very lightweight. But what they do is, if you buy one for the twenty dollars, they, according to the company, and I personally have not seen it happen, but the company says that they donate one to a needy village, a needy person. So it is a charitable company. It probably is twice as much as you should pay for something that costs that, that only filters 264 gallons, which is a lot of gallons you if know, you're out hiking. What? How many gallons are you going to drink a day? I mean, how long are you actually going out or how many times are you using this? So that's Life Straw. Good, 
good company does good for Wonderful the world, work, yes. for the world, good work. And so I don't mind personally paying $20 for something, knowing that someone else is going to be helped by me doing that. So that's LifeStraw. Um, the other company is Sawyer, and they make a lot of different products, but they make this mini Sawyer that I specifically like, which is even smaller, but it does have some loose parts. It comes with a syringe, which could be used to clean wounds, by the way. Mm-hmm. Just with water, you're not right. touching the wound with the syringe. There you go. But it's you. You need the syringe to help back flush that filter. That filter can also be attached to a standard water bottle top, mm-hmm. so that you can drink water by tilting the the plastic empty water bottle. Or I say empty because you've gotten the water bottle with water. You drank all that, and now you had to fill it up with possibly polluted water. So you're filling that up with polluted water, and then you tilt it up, and you can squeeze your water bottle, or you can suck through the filter. It works both ways, usually at the same time. So there are different parts to that, and you have to carry those around. But again, the actual unit itself is about, I'd say, half the size lengthwise of the life straw. Mm -hmm. But again, it's got other parts you got to carry with you. That one is just a couple dollars more, but it filters a hundred thousand gallons. Yeah, so that's a lot. So of that's a huge multiple it's a lifetime supply of water. Yeah, that's a huge multiple of the life straw. So it just depends on you as a person. You know, do you have the twenty dollars that you want to help someone else, or? Do you need to just invest in something that you don't probably need to buy another filter for maybe your whole lifetime? So it it just depends. They're both great. They both work really well. I think the mini Sawyer gets a little more out of the water than the Life Straw. So it's slightly, you know, you're going from 99.99% to 99.9999%. So... It's a little more efficient. All right. Um, and the microns, it gets some smaller micron sizes out. Interesting. Now, how long, so you got a filter, how long should water actually be boiled if you're going to disinfect it by boiling? Now, I had a good discussion of this with a reader recently. And as I said before, you ask a bunch of experts, you get a bunch mm-hmm. of answers. Some say that water should be brought to a rolling boil. By the way, there's another word for rolling boil is roiling boil, roiling. which is sort of funny, but it means exactly the same and thing. And that one's R-O-I-L, yeah, roiling. Wait, I just want to say something before you're going to the step of, of boiling. If th- this water has any kind of grit or substance in it or a looks filter cloudy, is for that too. even a, a filter or just a, a cotton T-shirt, um, triangular bandage material yes remember would we be talked a great about that water in filter recent, uh, video yeah to dr bones nurse amy to channel. get the grit and you know some of that substance out so now that you're you got that out now you can boil a clearer looking water there you go yeah absolutely so that that's useful with regards to how long some say the water should be brought to a rolling boil for three minutes, for five minutes, ten minutes, some people even say longer. However, that is not what the CDC says. That's not what the World Health Organization say. 
both have shown that this is not necessary and for survival purposes, I think it's wasteful, especially considering how much wood it takes to actually boil water. Uh, from the standpoint of consumption of fuel, from, from consumption of your time to put water, get water to boiling, it might even give away your position to others if you were in a unsafe setting. So basically, all you need to do is to have water boiling for about a minute. And it depends. You you would add two or three minutes if you are at very high altitudes. Altitudes. Let's talk a little bit about that. My reader noted that the backpacker's field manual states that water temperatures above 160 degrees will kill all pathogens within about 30 minutes, if you have 30 minutes of water at that level. And a few minutes at temperatures above 185 degrees. Now, boiling at sea level is 212 degrees. And so neither of that is boiling temperatures, but you're still killing some pathogens. So if you get the water to boiling, well, you've already passed the temperature that actually kills most pathogens. The most heat-resistant pathogen might be hepatitis A, and even that is going to be destroyed with just a minute of actual boiling. In addition, according to the CDC, heating water to a rolling boil well, for a minute has a high effectiveness of killing protozoa like cryptosporidium and giardia cryptosporidium is resistant even to bleach bacteria like shigella salmonella campylobacter e coli others that i mentioned in our new book uh, alton's antibiotics and infectious disease and viruses like enterovirus norovirus which got amy sick and hepatitis and hepatitis a now if most microbes die before water gets to boiling why boil water well, in survival settings, a good boil is something that you can recognize. You're not going to have a thermometer on hand that's going to identify the temperature of the water. Uh, you probably damage it if you put thermometers in boiling water, certainly, especially thermometers that are used on humans. So it's a recognizable sign that you've reached a safe temperature. Now, what the so the CDC standard is, and this is probably because of the heat resistance of the hepatitis A virus, heat water to a roiling boil for one minute for an additional three minutes at elevations above 2,000 meters, that's 6,600 feet or a little bit less than that, to ensure that the water has remained hot enough for long enough to destroy all risky bugs. Now, we were at the National Wilderness Conference last year, and their experts advocated bringing water to a boil for a minute at sea level and then boiling it for an additional minute for every 1,000 feet above sea level. And that's how we were originally taught. That's right. But, but I don't, And I don't think you can go wrong using that method, honestly, but is no longer the official method that's rec recommended by the CDC and by the World Health Organization. And so what happens at higher temperatures that causes water to need to be boiled for a longer period of time. It's thought that for every 500-foot increase in elevation, mm -hmm. the boiling point of water decreases by about a degree Fahrenheit. And so that means incredibly, if you're on top of Mount Everest, that's about 29,000 feet, water will boil at about 155 to 165 degrees. That is incredible. Instead of 212 degrees that's needed at sea level. Although I'm thinking on the top of Mount Everest... They might not get anything to boil yeah. <laughs> with, the, with the wind and the ice. And If you're going to get on top of Mount Everest, <laughs> I hope that you brought your own canteen. It probably is going to be ice anyhow. The que my question is, do people actually camp at the top or they just run to the top, plant their little flag or put a rock or whatever it is that they do to like leave something? Because I think they always do that. And then run back down to a lower level to actually sleep. 
I think they I think have. That's a, I think it's like a. Yes, I agree. Like they run up there and then they get down as far as they can before nightfall. I think they have a number of camp areas where you're supposed to spend the night. If that you're are already set up. That are not. I'm not sure if you could call them set up, but they're areas that are considered to be relatively safe. That yeah. you know, there's not going to be an avalanche that falls on you. Right. You know that allows them to to sleep in relative. Safety, and I say relative when it comes. You know, to I've had no interest to climb <laughs> in a freezing temperature to the top of, of anything, any mountain ever. <laughs> no, just just not. You know, <laughs> I just don't have that desire. Not and one and of I your know there are people in life, and I know there are people who do absolutely. But you know, they're talking about they had a, I guess, a really mild winter, and. Some of the snow melted more than it had. Usual. And they found so much trash. Oh, I'm sure. So much trash. These people are supposed to be not leaving anything behind, and there's just tons of trash on this. You know, do we really need to keep this mountain open? People die, and then they have to do rescues. And I think, personally, it's cruel to the the native folks that are there that they're hauling all of this stuff up for these you know professional hikers that obviously have a whole lot of money to waste because it it is expensive to do that's right talking about a cheap hobby here there's equipment you've got to pay to have that equipment taken up you've got to pay for protection and things to haul it up i mean and then if you get rescued i mean this is just i don't know should we really be letting people hike on this beautiful mountain that they're just leaving junk and trash on? It's not just just junk and trash. Actually, and dead bodies. They're dead bodies. They're people that they just can't get Avalanches to and can't and, get the body. And then right. when somebody gets hurt, that's very expensive to get them out. I don't know. I don't know. I, I personally think we should just stop letting people climb it. But that's my opinion. I think we're messing it up. Leaving too much junk. Well, all I have to say... That's my, my public service announcement. <laughs> Amy thinks well, we should shut down service. Mount Everest to these crazy climbers who are leaving their <laughs> junk behind. Well, interestingly enough, we yes, were darling. actually talking about why water boils at Yes, lower but we were talking about temperatures high elevations. Yes. And That's so right. I thought about <laughs> those people yes. being up on those high elevations. Yes, and I, you know what? I am taking the soapbox out of the <laughs> out of the audio room. That's so <laughs> but, you funny. know, that's actually I can't say that I disagree. But okay, so why does water boil at lower temperatures at higher altitudes? As water, any liquid for that matter, heats. There's a point at which it begins to change to a gas. This point uh, point is called the boiling point. When water reaches 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees centigrade, it begins to turn to steam or vapor. Once this point is reached, the water can't get any hotter. The process of the water being changed to steam is different than evaporation. Evaporation takes place at the surface of the water. Boiling, however, takes place within the entire volume of water. The vapor being produced in the water causes pressure called vapor pressure. The pressure has the pressure of the atmosphere pushing on it. You have the vapor pressure in the water, then you have the the pressure of the atmosphere that's pushing down on it. That varies, depends, dependent on atmosphere. 
So at one point or another, water can't begin to release the vapor that is boil. Mm-hmm. I mean boil until the vapor pressure is strong enough to overcome atmospheric pressure. So the atmospheric pressure varies, therefore the boiling point varies. So bottom line is... Very interesting explanation. Thank you. You're so welcome. I bet most people don't know that. That's right, but that's exactly why that happens. So the bottom line is boiling the best method. The answer is yes, according to the CDC and to the World Health Organization. Well, it's the best method you have at hand. Right. Most people don't carry sterilizers around with them. (laughs) And that is my point. Carry a filter around with you. Yes. In other words, a Life Straw or a Mini Sawyer or any any of the other portable filters. Very lightweight. Gets rid of almost everything. Right, because it takes fuel, it takes time to boil water by simply using wood. And then, you know, lighting up wood in order to boil it. So then wouldn't it be smart if one of these naked and afraid people brought a mini Sawyer or a life straw with them? Well... Wouldn't that be kind of smart? (laughs) But I I would say that it would make sense for them to do it, but they're only allowed to bring one thing. So they probably need a knife. Last time I saw it, they gave them a whole bunch of things. That's right. Well, I think, honestly, if you have... More than one way to boil water, your best. Remember, they say one is none, two is one, and all that kind of absolutely survival stuff. But the truth is, you may give away your position in times of trouble, in naked and afraid. You're really not worried about, I guess, giving away your position. There's not a tribe of cannibals. No, there that's is going a, to eat your naked body. There's a tribe of cameramen. Cameramen. <laughs> They or probably, camera ladies. They probably won't know. cannibalize you. No. Though. So I think you're probably okay. Safe. Hey, I just want to mention our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials and Austere Settings. If you've ever wondered what to do with all those fish antibiotics everyone says you should have, you should find out from the first doctor to ever write about them. Infectious disease is nothing to sneeze at. And the information in our book in wise hands, well, might just save some who otherwise wouldn't survive in times of trouble, you'll find it on Amazon or at our website at store.doomandbloom.net. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. See you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.